Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Welcome back. We've got another abortion story today. Are you so excited? I mean, sure, excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to be excited about it, but I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll make it through this. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Don't click away yet. Stay with us. I know it's not the most fun topic, but as we talked about last time, these are important stories for us to hear to give us a better understanding of the real human side to abortion. Men create 100% of unintended pregnancies, and thus 99% of abortions, and yet we hear their stories so infrequently. There are, of course, political spin reasons for this, but there are also deeply personal reasons, some of the same ones that Erin described in her story. And there are conscious and kind reasons, men who are silent because they don't feel like the story belongs to them, or they don't want to reveal something that the woman wouldn't want revealed. It's tricky for them. But my friend Aaron is in a place where he's free to share. This is his story. For guys that are dealing with it, own your story. Own your story. He lives in Washington State with his wife and daughter. He considers himself an academic. Later today, he's talking about the CHOP in Seattle. I'm doing an interview later this afternoon with two researchers from the University of Washington who are trying to put together an oral history of the CHOP to create it into a play, a stage production. But then also they're gonna archive all of these interviews so that it's accessible, so that the history of what happened, this oral history gets to be preserved forever. So I was like, that's okay then. He currently plays soccer and basketball for funsies. And then I get the evening before I have a lot of soccer tomorrow. So I play soccer. Now, oh, you do oh, a lot. Cool. Yeah, I play a lot of soccer. I'm the oldest person. Yeah, I'm the 43 year old running around with a bunch of early 30s and late 20s. He's cognizant of his fitness so that he can keep up with the youngsters. Yeah, yeah. Somehow I still keep up with them. That's what's crazy to me. I'm like, I don't know how I'm keeping up with all y'all, but uh, y'all had a really heavy drinking night the night before, or like <laughs> right, I'm in so better even, shape than I think I am. But so even the playing field, I think. Yeah. The, the I, drinking I think a lot of do. it's hangover. I think a lot of it's hangover. This is relatively new, not the sports, but being able to play on Sundays. For so long, you've had your Sunday mornings set aside for church, right? Now yeah. they're currently open, right? Yeah, it's, it's really weird. Yeah, 23 years of every Sunday, right? Like that doesn't include like growing up, but like 23 years of being a pastor. And so being committed every single Sunday. And usually the time off policy in churches is you get two Sundays, right? You get two to three weeks of time off just like anybody else, but you can only take two Sundays off. 23 years as a church pastor. That's a long time. Most recently, he pastored a church in Seattle, which got started right before COVID hit. So he kept that little community up and running through the lockdowns and then closed their virtual doors. 
He's currently a director of operations for an education-focused nonprofit, and that's okay for now. But the future is a bit unknown. Today, we're here to talk about his abortion story. And I shared with him how my other friend Erin felt after her interview, the reality that descended as far as who she needed to tell in real life and what their feelings might be. So I checked in with him on that front. I know you've been relatively open about yours, so maybe you won't have that kind of reality check, but. Yeah, I don't know what it'll be like, right? Like once we're done with this and once I hear it, I'll be like, huh? Okay. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know, but that's really good to think about. I don't know. There's nobody that needs to know that doesn't know if that makes sense. So that's yes. not anything that I'll have to process. I don't know what I'll have to process when it's okay. all said and done. You'll find out. Yeah. You'll find out. When I know. Done. <laughs> it'll be like a, I, I bet you it'll be like a brick to the face. <laughs> Okay, he's feeling good, he's ready. So we're heading back to Aaron's high school in Illinois. I was I was this skinny, tiny, by tiny, I mean like short, shrimp of a kid. Yeah, and I really enjoyed watching sports and playing sports and being about sports, but really like the center of my life was show choir. Mm. I was a show choir kid. We sang and we danced, traveled the country, and we won nationals my sophomore year. I'm a national champion show choir kid. Yeah. Yeah. I did not see that information coming. It really did. Do you know what show choir is? I was picturing pitch perfect style acapella, and that's pretty close. But I googled his team, the Swing Sations, and it's acapella on steroids. Mid-performance costume changes, i.e. ripping off your first dress and revealing another below. Props, twirling, dancing, strobe lights. So I grew up in a smaller town, like a bedroom community for a small city. And this town, kind of the thing that everything centered around was, was show choir and football. That was kind of the two things for us. And I didn't play football. I was too small. <laughs> my mom oh wouldn't my let me. <laughs> he was also a church kid. I grew up in a small church, church about 100, 120 people. And the youth group was kind of my circle of friends, so to speak. My two best friends were in youth group. Well, I was in a band. I was in a Christian band. We were a Christian cover band. And we played get this you'll like this we played the pony express days that was the festival in our little town was the pony express adorable yeah and so we would headline the christian stage all right so a small dude in a small town into basketball and golf and show choir he wasn't a nerd in fact he dated many girls in high school but his most serious was the girl he met his senior year in show choir. She was a year younger and she caught his eye on day one. Yeah, we met in show choir. So she was she was in the band. She had just moved into town and she was new to the new to the area and we just met. I don't even really remember like it was probably one of those like chance we met in the hallway kind of thing. Didn't even realize each other was in the group. 
until one of our first like all together practices kind of thing. And we got together to study. It was a study date, right? Which is funny because I wasn't this like brilliant academic in high school. Like I, yeah, like getting into college for me was, you know, not a long shot, but it wasn't like I had to go to Bible college to get into college or to a really low functioning state school. <laughs> yeah. That would have been that would have been my reality. So they got together for a chemistry study date, which was a bit ironic because he was supposed to be the one who had taken chemistry already and could help her out. But math and science were not his forte. Or, or that was our first time together was a study date over at her house and ended up kind of getting together after that. It just kind of there was a mutual attraction and it just kind of kind of worked out. So we started dating. <laughs> I, I guess that's what you do in high school. You date. I don't really. Yeah. I never really asked her to be my girlfriend. Like it just kind of happened. Yeah. I took her to homecoming. I took her to prom. He's got his girlfriend. There's mutual attraction. Here's the mindset he had about sex. Oh, you weren't supposed to do it, right? Like it was purity culture on steroids. It was, especially for girls, right? It was like girls had better not do it because they're, they're going to get pregnant or they're going to get a disease or like it was all the fear-based about sex was fear-based for girls. And then for boys, I mean, coming from the church for boys, it was you just don't do it and um, be wary of the girls that dress scantily clad, you know, be, be wary of the girls that are a little bit more forward or flirtatious. They're Jezebels in, in sheep's clothing or in, or in the devil's gear, right? Like that was the aura, the environment in which I kind of grew up. It, it wasn't, it may not have been that stern or conservative but it was definitely that was the undertone the undercurrent of the sure, yeah that was that was the general message even if those weren't the words that they yes read. those are the messages i remember right yeah <laughs> in, that's in different in words brain. right but those are the messages that i remember was it was very much like no abstinence was the policy right it wasn't even like use protection it was abstinence as the policy steer clear don't do it whatsoever Abstinence may be the best policy, but it's not effective in practice. Because guess what? The desire to have the sex overrules the policy. You still had sex. Why? Oh, yeah. Uh, the opportunity presented itself. <laughs> One of those Jezebels, you mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the opportunity presented itself. It was one of those days of getting together and studying and we found ourselves in a private location a private place where there was no uh no disruptions or no disturbances would be had we knew that it was a safe location and the opportunity presented itself i think that's probably accurate i don't think either one of us planned it i don't think either one of us expected it it just sort of happened like true love waits was a big deal around that time. And I had never really made that commitment. So in some respects, like there was no commitment that I had made that I was breaking. There was no promise to myself or a future wife, you know, those sorts of things that go along with the, the true love waits conversation and programs. It just like literally just happened. Yeah. Had you two talked about it before it happened? Not planned, but like 
a conversation around like I want to wait or like any anything about sex. No, no, Nothing. there was no conversation. Uh, it was just opportunity was there, and I, mean, I think that, we both that's how it works. That like, moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was really works. spontaneous. Mm -hmm. That was about a month into dating. So once you did it the first time, then was it like on like this is our new hobby or? Absolutely. <laughs> I was 17. What do you expect? Isn't that like the male sexual peak, right? <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was no, it was anytime there was opportunity and then it became about looking for the opportunity. Yeah. We looked for that chance as opposed to allowing it to just happen spontaneous and naturally. It was like, nope, here's an opportunity. So both of you were happy about what you discovered. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly was. I remember that for sure. So you already know where this story is going, but little Aaron did not know. He has quite a shock coming. Oh man. I remember she told me after she missed her second period. That was a moment of like, hey, what now? Uh, and I was, I was a little shocked because it had been so long, right? So like nothing had changed for us in terms of frequency or amount, like everything had stayed kind of the same. When she told me, I was very, very like, oh, this is all the things that they say can happen that I didn't believe would happen to me. Right. It like, oh, I'm not invincible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So I remember being really, really nervous and then saying, okay, well, let's go get a pregnancy test. And we did the, the pee on a stick kind of bit. She did the pee on a stick bit, not me. Um, and again, it was, it was, it came back as pregnant and I was like, well, that's not a hundred percent. Those things can be wrong, right? Like, yeah, let, let, let's, let's make sure this is a hundred percent. And so we did the, the Planned Parenthood pregnancy test bit. Then it certainly came back. Yeah, you're pregnant. And that was the, oh, moment of like, what on earth are we going to do now? So how are you feeling? I mean, there was certainly a, a tremendous amount of fear. There was a lot of shame when I looked at those whom I trusted, those whom I looked up to, specifically within the church. There was a tremendous amount of shame. Also, a sense of loss that the future that I, I was, a, I was an extremely planned out person. Like I had my future completely mapped out of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go to school, how I wanted all of those sorts of things to, to happen and line up for my life. That like, there was this, this foreboding sense of loss that all of that had just been erased like on a chalkboard, like when you erase, like you take an eraser and you swipe it, like it still leaves that dust trail of chalk, right? Like it's not gone, but you certainly can't see it anymore. And it's like it has been erased or mauled or marred in some sort of 
terrible fashion. And so that sense of loss, especially for somebody who is, uh, so on the Enneagram, if that's familiar, I'm an Enneagram three. So it's all about achieving. It's all about like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will achieve and I will be the best, all of that sort of stuff. Like that was a, that was a very, very deep and visceral like loss within my heart and within my mind. That actually took precedence over the shame and the guilt and the fear. Shame, guilt, and fear of consequences. This was a greater consequence, a greater loss for me was that future that I had for myself. His future feels like it's been erased. They sat down and talked about all the options. The conversation really didn't center around any one solution. Like we looked at them all. Like honestly, there was one moment of, let's cross our fingers and hope that there's a miscarriage, right? Then we don't have to deal with anything. It's like, oh, we dodged the bullet. Let's like, let's just cross fingers, hope. Um, faith was not a part of this conversation in any way, shape or form. It was like, okay. Um, like there was a sense of God's disappointment or even silence. So engaging with God on that spectrum was like non-existence. And so it was, it was purely let's sit in this and just hope cross our fingers that there's a miscarriage and we'll wait and see what happens. Right. I, I forgot how far along she was. It was something like eight or nine weeks when we got the test back. And so miscarriage was still a possibility. And we we really, we really did hope for that. Yeah. And then it was, okay, well, what about adoption? Like maybe that's something we could do. And then I don't know who brought it up. Honestly, I, I don't know who brought it up. But then that question of abortion, like, well, maybe, maybe this is the best way to go. Maybe this is the best route. And context-wise, this is the late 90s, right? And the pro-life movement was gaining some pretty massive steam in evangelical circles. And abortion was like the dirty, 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 dirty word that you just don't do no matter what. And I think there was a really strong sense of within the church, within evangelical circles, within what I grew up in, that abortion equals murder, plain and simple. And yet, abortion came up as an option. if If I had brought it up, I wouldn't be surprised considering the fear of loss that I had. Right. Like, like from a self-reflective mode, like that would be self-preservation for me. And that would be completely accurate. The secondary and tertiary issues would have totally been the shame and the guilt and the confession that would have to, that, you know, I mean, like you can't hide it, right? right? Like there's no hiding that. So that those sorts of things, especially in a smaller town, like that, that kind of stuff would be really difficult to to hide. So yeah. yeah. I asked if in addition to miscarriage, adoption and abortion, they talked about the possibility of having a child together. One thing you have to understand about this time and culture is that you don't just have a kid. 
that option has to come with the strings of marriage, a lifelong commitment that is also taken with the utmost seriousness. Here's that conversation. Yeah, I we did, but it was very, very minor compared to the others, right? Like it, it still existed. It was like, well, we could get married, right? Because that's what you do. Shotgun wedding type stuff. I'm 17. She's not. Like, the, so there were those sorts of conversations where it was like, well, yeah, we could do this. And I don't know what that would look like. We never really got into the planning of it, right? Like, oh, well, we could have the kid and she could, she could live with you guys or he could live with you guys. And then when we get married, when we both hit 18, we get married, then, you know, you didn't play out any of that. No, No. it was never a scenario. Like there was, if anything, it was a, a vague dream of the future, but it wasn't like immediate plans. Right. It was okay. Down the line, this is what things could look like. Right. But it was never, it was never immediate. I mean, marriage was definitely a part of our conversation at that point. Well, that's the only option. Like, right. (laughs) I mean, if you went that route, it's the marriage and we're having the child. Those, that's a package deal. Yeah, there was, yeah, exactly. There were, and from that cultural standpoint, yes, that's all we had was marriage and and, and the kid and a fan, we create a family. There wasn't like this idea. I mean, okay. Right. In the Midwest, in the mid nineties, there was never an idea of like split home, right? Like, Oh, we'll have the child and we'll, we'll raise the child together. We'll figure out where we're going to go to school together kind of thing, but we're not going to be together. We're not right. going to, you know, like those sorts of things like co co-parenting from a on a different plane, that was never a part of the conversation for sure, because cultural standpoint, right? Like Midwest, yeah, totally. it's, it's married and you raise the kid in a family and in a, a nuclear family. And that's, that's what you got. Time was up. They had to make a decision. I am 98% sure that it was me. I made that decision and she went along with it. For me, it was the overriding sense of loss and it was the overriding sense of guilt and shame. Like as we played out more of the scenario, right? Like I couldn't imagine telling this to my friends. I couldn't imagine telling this to my youth minister. I couldn't imagine telling this to my parents or my grandpa, right? Like there's those sorts of things. And I I was like, there's no way. I could do all that. Right. So like when the reality of those things hit, that elevated the shame for me. And I know that I started to push that that's what we should do, that that's the option for us, that there's really no other choice. We have to have an abortion. And that's, that's, that's our only shot. That's our only choice. If I remember correctly, she was definitely okay with that. I think she was hoping for adoption. And part of that is because that's her story. Like she had been adopted. And so I know there is a sense of that as a reality for her, but I was fairly adamant, fairly dominant in that conversation about this is what we need to do. To to the point that I was the one that made the appointment. I was the one that created the story for us for how we could tell our parents what we were doing to get out of school that day. I, I funded the whole, right? Like I paid for it. Like it was, I, there was nothing that was going to stand in 
my way of making sure that this was the option and choice that we chose. I, I'm pretty sure she was okay with the decision. Like, I don't, I don't think that this was a forced thing. I do think in the background there, there was that sense of hope that maybe she had played out some things differently that we hadn't necessarily talked about in terms of like plans, like, oh, well, this is how we could do this. This is how this could work out. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure some of that stuff was sitting in the back of her mind, but I probably, if she did express that, I didn't hear it. Mm -hmm. I didn't listen to it because I was so singularly focused on on this is the this is the route that we have to go and this is what will make the biggest difference for us. There there is definitely still a sense of guilt that I pressured her into it that I still hold on to that I'm not necessarily sure what to do with or do about but in my remembering of the story in my remembering of of how I felt and what I was walking through, it was definitely, there was pressure for me to make sure that it happened. We used a, a college day, like you could do college visits. Senior year of high school, you got like, I think you got like five college visit days where it was an, unex or it was an excused absence. And I think you got a couple as a junior. And so we used a college day. I made an appointment up in Peoria, which was about an hour and a half away. So I said, hey, we're gonna go to this school downstate all you had to do was bring back a signed piece of literature saying that you did a college day. And so I had materials from that school at home and I used a Sharpie and I just signed somebody's name on it. I don't even know whose name I signed. Right. Whoa. And that's what I gave to the school on behalf of the two of us when we got back. So that was the story that we created. That's what our parents understood was that we were going on a college visit. And instead, we, we drove to the Planned Parenthood clinic. He printed out directions from MapQuest, and they hit the road. Because I'd never really been to that city before. And I, I remember driving around and not knowing how to find it. But man, my hands were just so sweaty. I felt like the, the heat was on max in the car. Like I was just, I was just very, very nervous and very hot and very uncomfortable. And I remember when we pulled in, there were the protesters along the side of the, of the entrance, right? They were, man, I feel like they were real close. I, they certainly didn't like hit the car or bang or anything like that, but they were, they were there and there were the images of the, of the bloody fetuses and the, the, the scripture verses and the, um, yeah, all of the things. And I remember looking at them thinking like, this doesn't help. <laughs> this doesn't help. You're not changing anybody's mind with this. Because if there's somebody's mind that maybe quite possibly could be changed, it's me. And you're not helping me. Like you're actually just driving that wedge of shame deeper and deeper and deeper and that singular focus that i have is getting clearer and clearer and clearer to where there's nothing on the periphery anymore there's not even any fuzz or gray area it is it is pure like black and white for me and i am choosing that line down the middle that i had chosen before so it was they were there that's for sure but it wasn't huge 
and they were yelling and shouting and I don't remember what they were yelling and shouting, but I remember they, they were yelling and shouting. Parked the car and we walked inside and did the registration thing at the window, sat down in the waiting room and we're just silent. Like, I think we were just, we were just quiet. I'm, I'm not even sure I held her hand. I'm not even sure I knew what to do. I'm, I'm not even sure I asked her any questions about like, how are you feeling or how are you doing? I really think we just sat there in our shame and in our guilt and in our silence together. And I remember when the nurse called her name, she looked at me and I asked if I could go back with her and they said, no. I was like, okay, okay. And she went back. I, I, again, I don't know if I offered any comfort. I don't know if I hugged her. I don't know if I gave her a kiss. I don't like, I don't know what I did. I, I just remember watching her walk back. I was the only man in the room and there was maybe a couple of other women. If that like one, maybe two other women in the waiting room. And I just sat there. There so this is this is before cell phones that could occupy you, right? Yes, so yes. it's it's the silent wait. I don't know. I just remember sitting there and it felt like forever. It felt like it was four, five, six hours long. It just like sitting in the waiting room, I have no idea what the process, what the procedure is, right? Like I'm not family. I'm not somebody that gets the privilege of hearing like, hey, this is what we're going to do and this is how it's going to go and this is when we'll notify you and all that sort of stuff. Like I have, like I get none of that. So it's, it's I'm flying blind just sitting there. I have no idea how long this is going to take. I do remember at one point the nurse did come out and said she's okay and then walked back. And I was like, all right, good. She's great. And she was and that she was in recovery and that she would be out shortly. But I couldn't go back there. I couldn't go sit with her in that recovery area. Like it, it was like that door was a was a was a gate that kept me out. There was a sense of like not in I, I didn't feel trapped. I just felt like I was on the outside looking in that I had made this decision and yet could not see the implications nor ramifications or consequences of that decision. Like I didn't get to experience any of that. I experienced the darkness of waiting instead. I've never experienced anything like that since. I never want to experience anything like that ever again. Waiting in uncertainty and darkness. I, I know that at, at times while I sat in that weight, I, my mind went into dark places of like, she's going to die. She's going to die back there. And I'm going to have to drive home. And I'm going to have to tell her mom. I'm going to have to tell her dad. Like there were those sorts of things because that's, that's the narrative that was so prevalent and prominent was that abortion is extremely dangerous, that people die from this, that it, that it messes them up. She's never going to be able to have kids again. Like, all of those sorts of things. Like I had all of that running through my mind in that weight. Yep. She's not going to make it through this. And I'm going to have, I'm going to have to not only confess, but I'm going to have to tell her mom. I'm going to have to tell her dad. 
and I'm not going to survive that, right? They're going to kill me. Your mind goes into really dark places and you sit in uncertainty and waiting. And that's definitely where I headed, especially as a 17-year-old. The girlfriend eventually came out and she was fine. They headed back home. She definitely had her arm around my shoulder and I supported her weight as we walked into, like, into the parking lot. Um, I opened the door, I let her, I, I helped her sit down. I reclined the seat for her a little bit so that she'd be a little bit more comfortable. And then I got in the car and asked her how she was doing and she said, okay. I didn't ask any other questions after that. I'm not sure because I didn't want to know or if I didn't want her to relive it again so soon. But we basically drove the hour and a half home in silence. The closer we got to her place, maybe the last 15 minutes started to talk about like the story that we were going to tell her parents as to why she wasn't feeling great. Because basically she's just, she's felt sick. Like she must've eaten something, you know, that, that kind of, those kinds of stories were what we were concocting in that space. But the majority of the, the drive home was, was all in silence. He dropped her off at home in the late afternoon and they didn't talk again until the next day at school. Remember, there were no cell phones. Back in the day, you would have had to call the landline, right? right? Like, so it was like, I'd have to talk to her mom or her dad first in order to get a hold of her. And there was no way I was going to do that. Like, there was no way. Right afterwards, he felt immense relief. I know that when she came out of the recovery room and I saw her, like, relief washed over me. Like it was, I dropped all sorts of weight, right? Like I, I don't even know the types of weight that I was carrying, but it was all gone. All the dark places that my mind went, all of that weight got dropped. All of the fear that something was going to go wrong and she was not going to be okay, or that we were going to end up in the hospital because of X, Y, or Z, like all of that weight got dropped. So all of that went away immediately when I saw her. The, the second stuff that went away was the shame. I was like, oh, like, but it was quickly replaced with a new set of shame, right? Like there was new shame that replaced the old shame. It was, I'm not going to have to tell people this now, but there's now this sense of shame. Like I felt like I was wearing a scarlet letter that nobody could see, right? So like that that book the scarlet letter it's you're branded with the a right for adulteress and now it's like well now i'm wearing the the bright letter a with abortionist like i felt like i had that scarlet letter of shame nobody could see it but i could see it and it was branded on my forehead um i i dropped the sense of like all of a sudden future came back into play for me right i was like Oh, that whole plan rematerialized. Yeah. Um, and so, like, there was all of that as a sense of relief, as well as like that sense of like, oh, good, good. Like, I, I, th I think we're okay now. Everything's fine. But then your relationship changes after something like that. And you're not quite sure what to do with it. And so, in, in some respect, traded one set of problems 
for another set of problems that we would then have to work through and talk about and, and deal with. He didn't really want to talk about and deal with those issues. I remember thinking, okay, it feels like a Seinfeld episode, honestly, where I was like, okay, what's the waiting period before I can break up with her? Oh God, Eric. Yeah, I know. I know. Like it it felt like, like there was that because the, because the conversations were so, so beyond anything I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that those were the things that started to, to flutter through my mind. Like, okay, what, yeah, yeah. What's the waiting period before I can break up with her? That, that became one of those, those types of things. And then I was like, I'm an ass. Like, right. Like it was like, I'm an ass. I just, I just asked, if not demanded this girl to go through this horrific, horrendous experience. And now I'm asking like, when can I break up with her? Do I wait two days? Is it a two day waiting period? Is it a two week waiting period? Is it a month? Like, what is it? Like, do I wait till after prom? Like, you, you know, like all oh. that sort of stuff. It's just like, oh my gosh. Oh. So yeah, I, I was like, I'm an ass. And even that is too kind of a word. But those were the those were the questions that I was walking through. And it was relief, right? Oh, he's making me mad right now. But he explained his mindset in a way that makes sense to me. And at the same time, I think some of it too was this sense of, I don't want to go through this again. So like even though even though there was the waiting period question for me it was still like I just don't want to go through this again and I don't know if we just dodged a bullet right like it felt like I had just recovered my future and I don't know if I could trust myself to not put myself right back in the exact same situation mm-hmm. that so like that's where those conversations I, th- I think that's probably the genesis of that also, the I don't really want to have the conversations about moving forward as well, because I don't know what that would look like for us. Right. So, yes, relief. And yet also at the same time, fear and shame and distrust of self. And it wasn't that I distrusted her, right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm like, no, I think she's probably going to be the one that says, like, we're not doing anything like this ever again. Mm-hmm. But there was still very much that reality of like, that's great, but I distrust myself enough that I don't know. He didn't break up with her. He went over to her house a few days after, and they had those conversations. Really uncomfortable conversations of boundaries. Like, how do you put boundaries in place in a relationship where there have been no boundaries before, right? Like, how do we do this? Because we loved each other. Like, that's very accurate like we really did love each other which sounds weird to say after like what's my waiting period but (laughs) but it's because of that as to why we actually did stay together we stayed together for several months afterwards it wasn't until after i graduated uh, that that we actually broke up i was about ready to head off to school and we'd had conversations about what that was going to look like and and she still she still had a year left of school um, of high school headed off to Bible college. 
The lies he had concocted worked, nobody knew, but he felt the simmering burn of that red A. A year later, he decided to tell his parents what happened. I had them come pick me up from college and I told them in the car. I wanted it to be a situation where um, I did not have to sit face to face with them. Yeah. Right. And so I orchestrated the, the boundaries and the parameters. My dad was driving, so I knew he couldn't swing. Uh, (laughs) 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 Not that he would, right? Like that's not my dad, but it was very much like, like I wanted to make sure that the scenario in the situation favored me as much as possible. Uh (laughs) I'm going to confess this. And so I did. And I was unbelievably floored by their response. Um, There's only a couple times in my life where I have experienced an unbelievable amount of grace. And that would be one of those moments. Um, For as long as I can remember, my mom has talked about grandchildren. And here I was sitting in the backseat of the car telling them that, that, that I had just robbed them of that space in that moment. And the way in which they responded with love, with care, with grace was, I, I've only experienced that a couple times in my life. And it, it was unbelievably life-changing for me, their response. It is why I believe so much now in grace and how important that is. Like, I, th- I don't think we extend enough grace to one another in this world and in this life. And if there's something that I want to get in trouble for, if there's something that I want to be found guilty of, it's offering too much of it. Um, I get in trouble for it. quite frequently from others on the outside looking in Um, but I'm okay with it because I know how much it changed me and I want that for others I want that to be other people's story too that they can experience that radical crazy like unworthy of feeling right of grace for 23 years, that moment shaped who I was as a pastor, shaped who I am as a person. Yeah, a car ride. (laughs) I asked Aaron what he felt like he needed grace for. I would would certainly say my actions. I, I don't, I don't think, I have a pretty nuanced view of life. So I disagree pretty vehemently with with pro-life people that life begins at conception. But the grace that I needed was, I needed to feel or experience a release from the shame that I had been carrying and they provided that for me. I, I needed the release of I needed to be forgiven from the manipulation that I felt like I had committed 
like how I had manipulated her to do what I wanted to happen. I, I felt like a great manipulator in that. And they provided that, not absolution or anything like that, but that was certainly part of the grace that I needed. But it was certainly the shame and the guilt of the lies and the secrecy that I had shielded them from. I, I mean, man, I created such a such a different world for them. And pulling back that curtain and revealing the depths of what I was willing to do and go to and go through, uh, revealing that darkness to your parents is not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. Um, yeah, that's what I needed grace from them for. He got what he needed, forgiveness for the lies that he told, lies that his parents lived inside for over a year, release from the guilt and shame he carried about how he handled the situation, and basically what he saw within himself during that time, and how his parents responded gave him courage to do something else. What they actually did for me in that moment as well was also gave me courage to ask my girlfriend to ask her for forgiveness as well. I remember calling her and we got together one evening and I let it all out. Like I just, I apologized. Like there was no tomorrow for everything that I had done to her, how I had treated things, how how I had manipulated her, how I, or at least how I felt that I had manipulated her, at least what was going on in my mind and my motives sitting down with her we weren't in a public place because <laughs> again control the situation control the location <laughs> but it was absolutely face to face and i i know sitting down with her i wanted her to slap me like i wanted her to hit me i wanted her to punish me in some way and that's not at all what i received and again how and why she forgave me I do not know, uh, but that, yeah, that was another one of those, um, that was one of those major moments of grace for me. And she gave me not only the gift of forgiveness, but she gave me this gift of being able to be transparent and vulnerable and that it's okay to confess and share the worst of yourself with others mm -hmm. and still be okay. I don't think I'd be talking with you <laughs> about this if it hadn't been for that moment. Aaron mentioned that he has a nuanced view of when, quote, life begins. I know that this issue isn't important to everyone, but it is very important to some people. And I would even say it's important to Aaron and I. As people interested in and even invested in a faith tradition, we welcome wrestling with the big stuff. What is the meaning of life and death? What is after life? What is right and wrong? Why does that question matter? You know, normal happy hour conversations. So I asked Aaron to talk us through where he's at theologically with abortion. 
Now, just a quick note that we're gonna say the word sin a lot. Sin basically just means something that's morally wrong with the added flavor that it's against divine law. Aaron said that it's about separation. Perhaps the best way to understand sin is, is separation. Sin separates us from one another. Here are his thoughts. For me, the sin that I committed in the midst of my story was deception. It was lying and it was manipulation, not the abortion itself, right? I, I, am, I, I believe that I am at least equally responsible, right, for the decision for the abortion. I believe that it's a little bit higher on my end, right? I don't believe that abortion itself is sin. Like if, if you want to have that theological sin conversation, because that's definitely where some people want to go. Like, well, what is the sin then? Because we, because we want to identify the sin. Right. No, that's very important. Yeah. So sin like that's identification. Not, <laughs> yes. Like that is not the sin. Like, like that is not the sin. It comes down for me, the theological question of when does life begin? The pro-life side would definitely say, like, life begins at conception. Okay, that's great. That's fine. Catholics actually think a little differently, which is why it is a sin for men to masturbate, is because they're spilling the seed, because they are, they're losing the possibility of life. So Catholic theologians, Catholic doctrine is that life actually begins the minute you ejaculate not necessarily when a woman has their period, right? When, when the egg is released, that's not a sin, right? That's an interesting sort of yeah, juxtaposition there. Mm-hmm. So if for Catholics, that's where it is. There's other people that would say like evangelical specifically, life begins at conception. It's when the, when the egg and the sperm, when they meet, that sperm gets inside and fertilizes the egg. That's when, that's when we have life. Well, great. I don't disagree that that's life, but I'm not sure that's human life yet, right? Like there's, it's still being created. There's no, like, like you'll, you'll have people say like, oh, that's the whole conversation now about the amount of weeks, right? Like go at eight weeks because that's when the heart starts to beat. I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Again, I really struggled with science in high school, <laughs> but like there's, there's those sorts of conversations. Well, this is when your baby has fingernails. This is when your baby has a heart. This is when your baby develops a brain. This is when your baby starts to do this and that and whatnot. That's great. I don't believe that is when human life begins either. And I know this creates a problem for some people, not just from a theological place, but from an emotional standpoint. Because what about the miscarriage? What about the woman who has, or the father that has dreams of what this child, of what this, this, that they are carrying this possibility that is there, right? And there's a tendency to, there's a belief then that in that moment that like, I lost my child. I, I do not want to negate that in any way, shape, or form, because there is a hope, there is a dream that that is lost. There is a whole future that has been constructed that is lost, and that is loss, and that is devastating. There is such an unspeakable amount of pain that happens in that space. Right.
what I believe that happens theologically is that life begins at the moment of breath. That when, when God breathed into Adam, he breathed life into Adam, like Genesis two kind of bit, like God breathed life into Adam. That is the moment life begins. And so when, when a child is born, when a child comes out, they breathe that life for the first time. Uh, there, there's a, there's another theological bit to this, that the name of God that is, uh, is all vowels and there, uh, but there are, is all consonants and they're all these very breath sounded consonants. So Yahweh, Yod, Hev, Ave, it's, it's these like breathy sorts of sounds and in Midrash and some, some Jewish commentaries, they'll talk about this name of God as if every time we take a breath, we are actually speaking the name of God. And what's beautiful about that is at the moment of birth, the very first thing that we do is we, we exhale out the name of God. We actually cry and scream out the name of God upon birth. And that is human life. That is, that is the impartation of the soul. That is the impartation of us as of, of, of naming God in our own being and in our own way. And, and to me, that is the, that is my theological foundation and grounding for, for life is that moment. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And I'm okay with that. And that's okay. That's grace. Nobody knows. That's the other thing. Right. Exactly. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But yet what I see in scripture is, is that, is that the breath of God is what matters. That that is what brings human life, whether it be Adam or whether it's the, the name of God that we get to always speak on our lips when we breathe. That is the moment that matters for us. So when you're talking about human life, is that synonymous with a soul? The soul is the core, the very being of who we are. And that doesn't happen until there is breath. That when God breathed into Adam, he breathed into Adam the soul. That's what animated his life. That's what brought him into being. And I think the same is true for us as well. He could be wrong. Nobody knows. We make our best guesses based on scientific information and, as applicable, our religious texts. So I wanted to shift from the spiritual to how our beliefs become political. Does this nuanced conversation of when life begins matter? For others, I don't think it will matter. I think we have become so polarized as a people that there's nothing, that the conversation of when does life begin is not going to change things. When does the, when is the soul imparted for someone? I don't think it's going to change things. Yeah. I don't know what will, but I'm pretty sure it's not that. Well, what about for you? What if you knew for sure that fetus was your actual child with an actual soul and it was going to die? Would that impact how you vote about abortion and the laws you would want to see in this country? What's interesting is, is that's the belief that I held and it didn't change my actions. But from a, 
third person perspective outside looking in, absolutely it would. Yeah, that would change the way that I voted because it has no bearing on me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it has no bearing on me, on what I would do, on my decisions, on my actions. It would be pure, it's purely everyone needs to live the way that I believe. Right. I think that's where we're at as a people. Yeah. I mean, that's why I vote for women to have the right to choose because, like, it doesn't matter how I view it, how I view it theologically, how I view it spiritually, whether I would make that decision or not, like none of that matters. It's the fact that everyone should have that right to figure that out for themselves, you know? Yeah. I, I've never considered myself to be pro-choice. I've also never really considered myself to be pro-life, especially pro-life as it's constructed now, because it's not really pro-life. It's just pro-birth, right? Like to use that, that trite, slogan. It's pro-birth. There's nothing that pro-life is doing to ensure life happens. Pro-lifers are also some of the staunchest defenders of the death penalty. They're some of the staunchest defenders of war, right? There's nothing about pro-life that makes me feel as if they are truly pro-life from a holistic standpoint. And yet at the same time, I, I can't consider myself pro-choice but it is not because i don't believe in abortion it's just i don't feel like it's hitting the marks either on everything that i find myself agreeing with and agreeing for like i think that every woman should have the right to make their decision and i think it should be very private i think they should be able to make that with their family but i also think they should be able to make it with their doctor and that their doctor can their doctor can create that environment of safety and protection for them that they can make some of those, those extremely difficult decisions without fear of prosecution. Right. So I don't know, like maybe I am pro-choice. I, mean, I don't know. Like I've never, I've never really considered myself that right. And some of it's because some of that might still be residual guilt and residual shame. Right. Like that's, that's a very real possibility. Well, and I think that it's privilege. I mean, because I haven't been one of those people that's like, I'm pro-choice, fist in the air. Like, I I haven't been that because, I mean, yeah, I've got the evangelical stuff going on. I've got my own spiritual stuff going on. But I had the privilege to not have to be that person because we've had access to abortion for our entire lives. Right. Yeah. And now it's like, Oh shit, I have to take a different approach now because it's a real thing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's really, yeah. Yeah. It's as rights continue to get stripped state by state, I'll be really interested to see where I find myself. Mm-hmm. right? Who I am today is vastly different than who I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Like I'm, I'm just a different person and everybody is. We evolve. We're not static creatures. We evolve in our thinking and the way in which we view the world and our understandings of things. And I'll be like where I am today, like, like this podcast will be an artifact of who I am and where I am at age 43. Right. Totally. Like, yeah. so where I will be in five years, 10 years from now, as things continue to evolve, as, as they shift and change, would be really interesting. Like I'm, I'm 
curious about that. Like, how will the context of the world around me change how I see things? And as abortion rights continue to get stripped and as stories emerge of girls who, who were raped or molested at the age of 10 and are pregnant and are now forced to give birth at that age, like, my goodness, it'll be really interesting for me how I will end up as those sorts of things yeah. come about. Yes, our view of the world will change as horror stories continue to emerge about women who can't access safe legal abortion services. In the meantime, here's Aaron's advice to the Christian church. Get off the picket line. Oh my goodness, quit, quit, it's unhelpful. That might be the first thing um, and probably the hardest thing for many to do, right? Is to get up because they feel as if they're accomplishing something by doing that. The church needs to center love, center the ways of Jesus and center love and how they interact with one another and recapture and recover what love really means instead of believing that love is telling people how they're wrong, telling people that what they're doing is wrong because you want to save their soul. And that's, that's the most loving thing you can do. That's not love, that's not love. The story of the woman caught in adultery is pretty instructive here, right? Like Jesus did not condemn that woman in any way, shape, or form, as she was caught in adultery. He also knew the systems that were at play in that moment as well. And yet he still didn't even condemn the men that surrounded her, right? He didn't condemn them either. He just showed them what they were doing and that they too were not without sin, right? And so like, hey, we're all in this thing together. Let's, let's tamp it down a little bit and let's actually express and experience love together because this is what love looks like. I, I, I think, man, church is a mess right now. It's a mess. Oh my goodness. It's a mess. Specifically, the white evangelical church is an unbelievable mess. And if we could get love right, if we could truly have an experience with what true love is, what real love is all about, I think I might change some things. I think that would be that would be the best thing for the church right now. But we don't. And I'm not sure we will anytime soon, which is both sad and unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. Love. love. An ethic of love. As of 2014, the abortion rate in the U.S. had reached a historic low. About one in four women have had an abortion by age 45. Of the women who access abortion care, half identify as Christian. Half. So if you're a churchgoer, look down your pew on Sunday. Got four women with their partners and children. One of them has had an abortion, and probably one of the men as well. They're hearing what you say. They're hearing what is said at the pulpit. How do you want them to feel in church? loved or shamed? What do you want them to know about themselves and about their experience? And most importantly, are you interested? Are you willing to hear their story? If you are, what are you doing to let women around you know that you're open to listening? 
This is a really important conversation. This is a conversation that needs to happen more in the church, a space where people's experiences and life stories don't get covered, don't get hidden or pushed back in to the recesses of shame, but where people are actually allowed to be themselves and to bring themselves fully. This is an important conversation for the church to have. And I think it's a corrective conversation for many. I have certainly experienced the consequences and the backlash of sharing my story in the church in very unhealthy ways. And so we need to do a better job as a people of allowing those stories to come out and be present, because I think then we will actually be better We'll actually be better followers of Jesus. We'll have a better understanding of each other. And as a result, I think we'll have a better understanding of forgiveness and grace. Back in the late 90s, Aaron had access to choice. He had a variety of choices and he picked one. He regrets the way that decision was made, but not the decision itself. He looks at his life now, his education, his precious wife of 20 years, his daughter, and knows that another decision in that moment would have changed his path. His daughter's still young, but as we played out a political future, he said he was scared for her to move and go to college in a red state. He's planning to share his abortion story with her. It's definitely something that I want her to know. I want her to hear. There are stories from within my family of things that others had done that if I had known about, maybe would have changed the way I saw things and experienced things, um, specifically as my own guilt and my own shame. And so I think it's important for our kids to know those stories about us so that when they mess up, because they will, because they're people, when they mess up, that they know that it's not something that they have to hide, that they have to hold on to and harbor as this awful, terrible, unredemptive part of themselves. So I want her to know that. I want her to know my part of the story. I want her to hear those things from me. When will she be ready for that? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. How will she be ready? How will I know that she's ready for that? I don't know. Yeah. I also want to make sure that I don't use it as a story of fear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, oh, um, yeah. I want that story of grace to be the primary thrust of that story, right? Like that that's the thing that makes the thing the thing. How, how it happens and when it happens, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know that every day it gets closer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it starts accelerating now. Yeah. I'm not nervous about it. That's for sure. I'm not nervous about it. I just want to make sure that it, the timing is right. That's what I'm really cognizant of when. And I, I, I kind of feel like, oh, I'll just know. And I know that's not true, but I'll just have to pay attention to the tea leaves, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you have set up a relationship where y'all are having trusting conversations on the regular, then it's possible you will know, you know, it'll just yeah. kind of come up naturally. I mean, 
you know, I've had some abortion conversations with my kid and it's because it's in the news right now. Right. And so they live in this world too. Like they see and hear what's going on. So it is like a natural in to have a conversation like that. Absolutely. So do you feel like there's anything your parents could have done pre this situation to like open the door for you to be honest, for you to seek their counsel? I mean, because as a parent, like listening to your story about running around and making the lies and going, you know, and dealing with that all on your own, like breaks my heart. Like I would hope that I could be a parent that my kid could use as a support, but I mean, I never had the sex talk with my parents. So right. In some respects, like that's, that's (laughs) something that's different, right? I learned it in sixth grade at school from school. So like there was never even the, yeah, the door wasn't even like cracked open to have a conversation. (laughs) So I think that's some of it too. Right. And, and that's stereotypical boomer fear, right? Like my parents are boomers. And so that's stereotypical, like boomer parents won't talk about certain things with their kids. And that's that's true that my parents fit the stereotype in that. There is a but here. Aaron's parents approached conversations after the fact, taught him critical thinking skills with questions around how he made decisions, a skill that has served him well. But ultimately, neither one of us know the right parenting approach. But we're trying to lead with a whole lot of honesty. So yeah, maybe just have the conversation with your kids. (laughs) I don't know. Like, honestly, yeah. So does Aaron have any words for the men out there who feel like they have an A on their forehead? Oh, man. It's a heavy A, and it will not go away for a long time. In fact, I'm not sure I have even smudged it out completely, right? I still feel as if there's remnants of it. This was, gosh, 25 years ago for me, right? Like, that's a long time in the past. And there are still tinges of that moment. Um, For guys that are dealing with it, own your story. Own your story. Find and seek out the people that you need to, uh, to confess to. That made the biggest impact on smudging out the A for me was confessing it to my parents because of how I had wronged them, but then also my ex-girlfriend because of how I had wronged her. I I found forgiveness and I found grace. Um, I'm not saying that you'll find that, but you will be able to remove some of that sludge that sits on your heart for yourself. I think becoming comfortable with your story is also really important. So share it, find the avenues and the places to share it that are safe for you until you're actually comfortable with it. So like, obviously don't go out and share it on a podcast right away. Um, (laughs) This is because honestly, this is years and years and years and years of work for me to get to this place. Mm -hmm. Um, Find forgiveness for yourself. Um, that'll be really important. Give yourself grace and allow others to give it to you. And I think then that that's that A that you're carrying, I think you'll start to see it fade pretty quick. And it may not ever leave, but at least it'll fade.
Aaron's advice to men was tell your story, seek out safe people to share it with. And as I talked about with Aaron last episode, this is about integrating this part into the whole of yourself. After this conversation with Aaron, I thought a lot about shame and about forgiveness and about what we need grace for and what we don't need grace for. It's interesting, I read this from Planned Parenthood. Shame and stigma keep us silent and separated. Stigma is built and reinforced at the intersections of media, culture, policies, values, and faith. The only way we can dismantle stigma is by connecting people, building safe spaces for all of us to speak our truths and bravely listen to the lived experiences of others. And I connect that definition with the story Aaron mentioned from the Bible, the woman caught in sin. The religious leaders brought her out and said to Jesus, quote, The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So may we do like Planned Parenthood suggests. Try connecting with one another. Build safe spaces for all of us to speak our truths and bravely listen to the lived experiences of others. And in turn, like Jesus, not condemn one another for those stories, but rather turn from the sin that separates. Okay, we got a little serious there. So I'll leave you with this song in honor of my pastor friend, Aaron. Just jokes. <laughs>